0: Man of Steel answers insight commentary, episode 25 DCCU speculation, creators and business. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question.
1: Start asking questions. Do the answer, son.
0: Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those eagerly anticipating the DCCU. This episode, we engage in speculation, cover the creators, the movie makers, and the movers and shakers, then wrap with the business side of things. This podcast dives deep in to the DC Cinematic Universe. To answer the critics and the confused, this show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate the films of the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. Well, there's been so much new DCCU info since our last mailbag a month ago, and we have an embarrassment of riches to talk about. This isn't a show for breaking news, but we do do news analysis to memorialize where we were in this moment so that one day we can look back and see where we were. Today we're going to tackle everything in three big sections. First, we're going to do a survey of the news from a story standpoint, so what insights we can glean from the BVS synopsis, the Aquaman synopsis, Suicide Squad set photos, and things like that. Then, we're going to talk about the people behind the films, like Greg Silverman, James Wan, Patty Jenkins, and David Ayer. And then finally, we're going to wrap with a little business talk. Warner Brothers as a studio, the licensing expo, and how. Licensing works. So, of course, we begin with that synopsis fearing the actions of a godlike superhero left unchecked. Gotham City's own formidable, forceful vigilante takes on Metropolis's most revered modern-day savior, while the world wrestles with what sort of hero it really needs. And with Batman and Superman at war with one another, a new threat quickly arises, putting mankind in greater danger than it's ever known before. That is a pretty long run-on sentence. (laughs) Yikes. Um, okay, before we completely overanalyze this, and I promise I won't ramble on this too much, I want to take you back to 2013, where the official synopsis for Man of Steel included this line, Clark Kent is a young 20-something journalist who feels alienated by powers beyond anyone's imagination. So maybe that was in the original film, uh, and cut, especially if the film originally took its cues from Birthright. But the bottom line is that the synopsis was wrong, and as far as we know, Clark wouldn't primarily be described as a journalist in Man of Steel. In other words, speculation is fun and all, but even an official synopsis can be wrong or misleading. And in the past, we've talked about the differences between the final product and the trailers. Um, If you've watched my Man of Steel Myths video with the mini-myths, you might remember the confusion surrounding... Jenny Jerwich. So whatever we read into this or speculate, obviously take it all with a grain of salt. We're just having fun speculating. So let's get into it. Just as a quick overall reaction, it doesn't really seem to reveal all that much. It essentially says what anybody who had just heard the BVS announcement and who had seen Man of Steel might be able to put together all on their own. You know, two heroes fighting and then a third act threat bringing the duos together as allies. Just like every first encounter, of heroes from the comics, but let's dig just a little deeper. With all the grammatical nesting that's going on, let's restructure this just to be a little bit more straightforward and concise. So, Batman takes on Superman, fearing Superman's actions are unchecked. Batman is Gotham's forceful vigilante. Superman is the revered savior of Metropolis. The world wrestles with what type of hero it needs. Batman and Superman are at war, a new danger to mankind quickly arises. Now, it may seem a little pedantic to reword or break things up like that, but it might illuminate some insights obscured by that original phrasing. Batman takes on Superman. Well, Batman takes on Superman makes it clear who the aggressor and the instigator is. There's a certain comfort in that because it means that we're not going down the path of the president sicking soups on Batman like in DKR. It also makes the matchup marginally more plausible. If it's at Batman's behest rather than simply a defensive reaction. In other words, if Batman had been aiming for this confrontation, his preparations make more sense than if Superman just shows up and Batman is able to deal with him purely based on his paranoid preparations alone. I'm not saying that such contingencies can't be a part of the character. They obviously are, but one situation is a little bit more plausible than the other. So why does Batman go after Superman? Well the synopsis gives us a little bit of motivation, fearing Superman's actions are unchecked. Only. doesn't say Superman, it says godlike superhero. So first, we know that Batman is motivated by fear and cynicism against actions that he acknowledges are superheroic. And that can be interpreted as an issue of accountability rather than necessarily reprisal. And I love that and I hope that that's the case. Way back in episode 2, we talked about the idea of how Batman bringing a grievance against Superman, specifically over collateral damage, isn't necessarily as meaningful, or resonant as some other conflict on which reasonable minds can differ, and which might speak to, say, larger themes or issues. The question of accountability with great power has always been a compelling theme and an interesting parallel with the USA's arguable status as the last superpower. The issues that Superman might wrestle with are the kinds of issues that we wrestle with as a nation. It's at
2: this precise time that Americans are saying, yeah, we're the superpower, but we don't necessarily know what we want to do with it. What do we stand for? Who are we in the world? There are three foreign policy choices that I believe that Americans have, and they're very, very different. The first uh, I would call indispensable America. An indispensable America means that, you know, we don't necessarily want to be the world's policeman, but the fact is no one else is going to do it No one else wants to. No one else is remotely capable. And if there is a power vacuum, that's going to hurt everyone, including us. We have to still be in charge in sort of building and supporting international institutions. We have to still be the vanguard for promoting values that matter to us. A a second choice, a very different choice, is Moneyball America. This idea that the United States, we're still the the richest country in the world, but the idea that we're gonna promote democracy everywhere, there's a lot of pushback from that. What we're gonna do is really spend the money, spend our resources in the places that really matter the most for us. The third choice, a very different choice, independent America. Independent America says we are still the world's only superpower, and our values are important. But those values are not important in telling everyone else what to do and how to be. The values are important in actually living by them ourselves in actually leading the world by example. Independent America means that if other countries in the world have big problems, Other countries of the world are going to have to fix them. America is not there to send its troops all over the world. America is not there to tell them how they have to act. There's been a lot of hypocrisy on that front. But America is going to be a sterling example so that people will have something to look to and say, we'd like to change our system ourselves because that seems to work a little bit better than our system does. These are three radically different perspectives on what the world's only superpower can do with that superpower. to shape the world in a way that will be not only more conducive for Americans today, but also gives us the best chance of having
0: a bright future. So the issues raised by that clip are the kinds of things on which people can reasonably differ and a really interesting way to set Superman and Batman apart from one another in response to their attitudes towards intervention, involvement, inspiration, and so on. The fact that Batman recognizes Superman as a hero is important because it means hopefully that Batman hasn't checked his brain at the door, and simply ignored all the good deeds and intentions of Superman between his debut and their encounter, suggesting that there is a more pointed purpose to their pugilism rather than just reprisal or wrath. We'll talk a bit more about checks and balances later, but there is that phrase, the actions of a godlike superhero. I'm not going to get into the phrase godlike too much. There's clearly a theme that's going to continue on from Man of Steel and into Batman v Superman, and we've already seen it raised repeatedly in a tiny teaser, and that deifying language appears in this short synopsis not once but twice. The phrase left unchecked implies that Superman hasn't been accountable until this point, which is interesting. Otherwise, it might refer to this specific situation. That is, Superman may have been accountable but never had to be checked until whatever that inciting incident occurs in this film. We have the phrase forceful vigilante. This phrase gives us two obvious insights. First, that Batman is going to be violent and use force. And second, that Batman acts outside the law. Traditionalists can breathe a sigh of relief if they had feared that this Batman might be a state actor, if Superman isn't, and they inverted the Dark Knight Returns. I know I proposed it as a rationalization of how Batman could make sense, but I think Vigilante is a way more resonant rendering of the character these days when compared to the glitzy policeman of Batman 66. The next key phrase is revered savior of Metropolis. So again, Again, we get that deifying language and this idea is consistent with the monument that we've seen in the teaser. It's not necessarily consistent with the graffiti on the statue, but as we've discussed in the past, the very existence of a statue shows the prevailing view. The insight that this line gave me is that I may have been taking Superman saving the world for granted. In the past, we've talked about Batman having, perhaps, enough sense to recognize that Superman saved Gotham when he stopped Zod, and within the confines of Man of Steel, that is a perfectly reasonable conclusion, because who else could or would stop Zod? However, if the door to the DCCU has been cracked open and we're getting a peek into magical kingdoms, off-book government agencies, gods, and monsters, that assumption is a little bit less certain. Which is to say, depending on how slow Zod's scheme was and how long it took, the possibility exists that something from those worlds and powers hidden away from us would have stepped in. Maybe. Look, this is assumption, on top of assumption. But imagine if the Black Zero event was viewed through this kind of lens. Imagine if humanity believed that it could have fought back and won against Zod. The only difference Superman's intervention made was to spare Metropolis from becoming that battleground of last resort or a smoking radioactive crater. Under that lens, the gratitude towards Superman globally might be more diffuse. Batman and Gotham wouldn't necessarily credit Superman as their savior, thinking that they would have survived anyways. But Metropolis would adore Superman all the more, because without him, humanity would have had no option but to completely sacrifice and level Metropolis to stop Zod. Maybe. Again, it's one of the things I admire about Man of Steel is how open-ended it left things so that either of these possibilities are still on the table even after all the world building and the events of this world changing epic. Those who have to carry the ball forwards can go anywhere because Man of Steel was conscientious about not writing the world into a corner. But speaking of the world, we get the next phrase which has the idea that the world wrestles with what sort of hero it really needs. I love this because this is a deeper theme and meaning that goes beyond something as specific as collateral damage. Because the world wouldn't have to wrestle over that issue too much. This means that the film is likely to confront different defining ideologies that make up and contrast the Dark Knight and the Man of Steel. And I hope the answer isn't either or, but both. That's the conclusion that the world's finest come to themselves in their traditional team-ups, and with their Justice League membership. It's why Superman provides Batman with the gift of kryptonite, as a means of checks and balances, and trust. And that has to be the conclusion that the world reaches in order for it to embrace a justice league and for all the heroes to come out of superman's debut for the dccu i like the idea that the world has to wrestle with this because that's also a continual theme from man of steel things that we've always accepted as givens and simply taken for granted now have to be seriously questioned weighed thought about and considered we're made to revisit past assumptions with healthy skepticism and informed optimism and that seems to be a more modern attitude all on saying is that I admire even lip service to the idea that the world doesn't simply accept what it's given without question, even if we know that the ultimate answer is the Justice League and the wild world of the DCCU. Now, what each hero represents, with Superman as hope, light, and idealism versus Batman's concern, darkness, and pragmatism, we'll talk about in some future Batman focused episode, I think. Given that Superman's already taken a life as the ultimate act of pragmatism, it will be really interesting to see what thematic differences the DCCU chooses to adopt. We'll talk about this some other time, but I wonder if they may continue with countering our trope-driven expectations. It's debatable whether they landed their attempt at anti-romance or whether their effort was received. So while my inclination is towards that trope-driven dichotomy between Batman and Superman, they may go for something much more realistic and nuanced, simply because in the real world, rarely are two people ever so diametrically opposed, yet unified in core ideals that make them allies. Real life is messier. But we can already see hints that the DCCU is tending towards a more stylized reality. But that's enough of that. Let's quickly run through these last two lines. Batman and Superman are at war. I have to think that war is hyperbole. But the only two notes that I have here is that war implies the gravity, the depth, and the scope of their enmity, or at least their combat. It doesn't sound like this is just going going to be a casual misunderstanding with a few back and forth attacks before they play nice. There's an implication of cost and casualty, hopefully meaning that this will be an epic and enjoyable face-off. I know that there's an ongoing criticism about the conflict being earned. We'll tackle that another time, I think. The second note that I have here is that war has rules, and despite that saying that all's fair in love and war, incidentally, that sentiment came from the delusional Don Quixote, and the particular phrasing came from an English novelist, neither of whom had ever seen actual combat, war has been paradoxically civilized, and it is not an unrestrained free-for-all. I note this because their face-off may take the character of a duel more than a no holds bar melee. We perhaps get a hint of that with the teaser's suggestion that they exchange words and that Superman even bothers to drop in front of Batman, as opposed to, say, dropping a rocket on his head. We don't know what those rules are or why they may comport to them, but comments from Cavill suggest that Superman doesn't engage in free-for-alls for no reason. And finally, our last line and idea, a new danger to mankind quickly arises. So many have justifiably raised the issue that how can this third threat put mankind into greater danger than is ever known before if Zod threatened planetary extinction? And honestly, I wouldn't worry about it. This is a synopsis. Maybe it's written by marketing, maybe it's wrong, maybe it's hyperbole, but if it's Absolutely true. Well, then there's apologetics. We can go in one of two ways: either that the threat is actually greater than the extinction of all mankind, or that Zod didn't actually threaten the extinction of all mankind. I don't know what that first case might be. Um, maybe a battle for humanity's soul. <laughs> I don't know. For the latter, we've already discussed this earlier in revisiting why Metropolis might be more beholden to Superman than the rest of the world. If we reinterpret Superman as saving Metropolis instead of the the world, then arguably this threat is something problematic to the planet. I'm not too bothered by this third act threat, I know that there are some who would rather the film focus on just Batman and Superman, but thematically it makes sense and it follows Man of Steel and the modified three act structure. If Man of Steel is the birth of a superhero in three acts, Act 1, Clark reconciling his identity, Act 2, being outed and confronted by Zod, and then Act 3, overcoming Zod for Earth and becoming Superman man then Batman v Superman could predictably stand as the world dealing with the superhero phenomenon. Act 1, establishing the nature of Superman's public existence. Act 2, Superman and Batman coming to blows over the tensions caused by Superman's debut. And Act 3, is Superman and Batman coming together with Wonder Woman to tackle this final threat tending to resolve the world's attitude towards Superman's public existence. At a minimum, Batman is on board with the League after all. And what's Exciting about that is we see how Batman v Superman fits into a grander three-act structure between Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, and Justice League. Man of Steel is the birth of a superhero, Batman v Superman is the world reacting to and embracing the superhero, and then Justice League is the world of the superhero. Snyder's modified structure tends to be third-act heavy, and that gets reflected in the idea that Justice League is a two-part film. Again, this is all just speculation, but along the those lines of speculation what could this threat be i think i'm gonna hold off speculating too much but i think my approach to speculation would go something like this lex Luthor is definitely in the movie lex Luthor on his own probably isn't enough to threaten the world in a visually compelling manner and in order to make luther's screen time economical the themes and the conflicts that he develops should precipitate into the final threat or put another way even if i wanted to imagine the threat to be the amazons or the atlanteans or something more more cosmic than that, I should try to imagine a way where Luther plays a role in getting there so that the threat is the payoff to Luther's machinations. By now, I'm sure you're aware that the prevailing theory is Doomsday, and I gave my thoughts about that way back in a previous episode when we only knew a fraction of what we know now. Now, something I didn't raise is how Lex Luthor and Doomsday would work together as a dark thematic mirror to Superman and Batman. Both pairs feature a cynical billionaire pragmatist with a kryptonite powerhouse. However, one represents what good can do with such tools, and the other shows how they can be debased and go awry. And if Luther is the problem, and the world's finest is the cure, it would tend to resolve the angst about aliens if terrestrial threats like Luther end up presenting a greater problem than Cal el ever did, and it would open the world towards embracing the League. Maybe. We'll see. Let's be optimistic and keep our minds open. Okay, so one of the things to come out of all the news that we've had of late is a short synopsis for Aquaman. All the same disclaimers that we've discussed before apply here. Things could change, things could be wrong, etc. Nonetheless, this is what we're told Aquaman, the king of the seven seas, this reluctant ruler of Atlantis, caught between the surface world, constantly ravaging the seas, and the Atlanteans, looking to lash out in revolt, is committed to protecting the entire globe. There's a lot to unpack here, but I think I'll just go quickly with seven points for seven seas. First, that our character will be referred to as Aquaman. Maybe. Second, it sheds light on the initial reveal and Snyder's tweet by saying that he's the king of the seven seas. So Unite the Seven would tend to strongly refer to the same seven seas under his rule. Third, he is indeed a ruler, a king, and reluctant. Fourth, Atlantis exists, and for there to be a kingdom and a monarchy means that it pre-existed Superman's debut, and that that world of weird was hidden from mankind until now. Fifth, the tensions are described. The ecological crimes of the surface versus Atlantean's desire for reprisal. Note not necessarily the involvement of the Kryptonian world engine. 6. To lash out in revolt suggests insurrection and unrest. Will the villain be a would-be usurper to the throne? Seventh, And finally, Aquaman has committed to protecting the entire globe, which should put him in good company with the rest of his fellow League members. The descriptive words that we get are King, Reluctant, Caught, Committed and protecting, and that tells the tale of somebody behest by woes and responsibilities, but with a strong moral compass and heroic outlook. Despite Aquaman's rough looks and 90s visage, might this be a more political and regal take on the character? Maybe more Game of Thrones than Conan? I can't wait to find out. Moving on to Suicide Squad, I have no idea where to begin. Many are making so much of the set leaks, but I'm going to take Ayer at his word that their secrets are intact. Before these images, I would have sworn that Suicide Squad would have been a straight-laced military or covert ops thriller based on Ayer's military background and the documentary styled end of watch. But after seeing everything that's coming out from the streets of Toronto and listening to some of the interviews with Ayer, I'm starting to suspect a highly stylized over-the-top action film. I'm really intrigued by the Joker scenes, but honestly more interested in the world building because Batman's appearance, along with the Batmobile, really brings the world together and places it squarely in the DCC You. But it's gotta be stylized. I mean, outside of action tropes, when does it ever make sense to cling to the roof of a car? Plus, we've seen a lot of magic and metas, and Suicide Squad alone seems to more than double the supernatural and paranormal people that we would have known about only going by the slate announcement. And that makes me excited and nervous. I'm excited because this is such a quick leap into DC proper, but I'm nervous because magic is tough to tackle and blend with a contemporary setting. But it reads like a genre fan's dream, with big guns, sci-fi superpowers, and fantasy magic all on the streets of Midway Gotham and Terreborn Parish. All in all, I'm way more relaxed towards Suicide Squad analysis because I don't think there's any way that I can rationally predict or account for magic or over-the-top reality. We just don't know what the rules are yet. We don't know if Tattooed Man is a Green Lantern level threat, or just somebody who can put on a light show. We don't know why the Suicide Squad gets an escort and what they can do that their escort can't. We don't know when the Joker-mobile scene takes place, or how those aircraft were downed, or what infected those soldiers, why Waller had a gun, or where the Enchantress is. Everything we've seen just raises questions, and I like being intrigued for now. My main prediction is that the Suicide Squad is going to deal with magic and the supernatural more than you'd expect initially. Finally, the last part of our speculation section, I could do an entire episode on just the Batmobile, and I've been trying to rain myself in with these notes for the costumes, but gadgets are tangible. They have specs, and they have a design process, and that means loads of lists. So it should come as no surprise that the Batmobile got its own blurb and a list of specs that makes my brain tingle and do the happy dance. That said, you can get a much better breakdown of all the details, including the interior, at Collider.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. I do want to point out three quick things. First, if you didn't know what active armor means, it's probably more commonly called reactive armor, and I've always admired the counterintuitive ingenuity of blowing yourself up to protect yourself from attack. You can wiki or youtube reactive armor for a full explanation, but the gist of it is setting off a superficial controlled explosion on the surface of your armor in order to disrupt, destroy, or defuse an incoming attack. It's one of the best ways to lighten the armor on a vehicle without giving up high-end protection. I don't Imagine that it will figure into the film, but these kinds of technical details show the loving care and the world building going on behind the scenes. I eat that stuff up, and I'm sure prospective licensees do too. It is a lot easier to sell merchandise surrounding tangible objects and characters than ideals or abstractions. But I'm getting off topic. We'll talk about business at the end of this episode. One other note I had about the car was the listing of the spec on the turret guns as 50 cals or. 50 BMGs, and that's an interesting choice because it's almost a boring caliber in the context of such a crazy custom car. But it fits with the modular ethic and the plug and play of a proven systems that work and are ubiquitous. Perhaps. And the last note, the blurb about the Batmobile says, it is single-handedly designed and fabricated by Batman which is a slightly insane proposition. It also says that it includes quote-unquote the latest in covert military-grade armaments, stealth, and active protection systems, and stolen Wayne Industries technologies, which suggests a cutting-edge vehicle. Now, if this is true, we get a little insight into Batman, in that he's terrifyingly intelligent and industrious on comic book levels, beyond the more grounded Nolan Batman, who more realistically outsourced this kind of thing. Now, because of the Dark Knight cues and being informed that Batman is tired and weary, many have assumed that Batman is retired. But if his Batmobile is built to spec with the latest technologies, then doesn't that tend to imply that Batman is still active in order to take advantage of the latest technologies? Unless Batman is retired from crime fighting and has put all that passion and effort and thought into the Batmobile as an outlet for his pent-up and unfinished work. Like that man who doesn't know what to do with himself in retirement and starts spending all his time working on cars. Of course, like with anything coming out of licensing, it could just be a throwaway line, never meant to make such binding proclamations or these implications. Okay, that's it for the speculation section. I know I didn't go that deep or cover everything, but I'm doing the best with the time I have. After the licensing expo in E3, I'm swamped at work. But it's fun to take a break and go over all this DCCU stuff with you. It's definitely fun to speculate wildly and make lots of guesses about what's going on inside the world of the DCCU, but I thought we'd take a peek behind the curtain and behind the scenes to the movie makers, the movers and the shakers, the executives, directors, and actors making these things in our next section. Probably the biggest piece of substantive news that we got was an interview between Warner Brothers executive Greg Silverman and The Hollywood Reporter's Pamela McClintock, which is clearly a follow-up or a rebuttal to her editor's earlier piece on the DCCU's lack of direction. Journalists have their strategies and tactics too, so Masters gets a thousand words to start a fire, and then McClintock offers a thousand words to Warner Brothers to put out the fire with an exclusive interview. How could the WB decline? It's all fun and games in the entertainment news game, and it's their job to get the news, and it's the studio's job to protect and promote the studio and to play along with the politics of it all. And while executives aren't as exciting as actors or directors, they arguably have more sway over what you'll see in your lifetime. And if you have the time and the inclination, I highly recommend watching a November 2014 roundtable featuring the top executives from the biggest studios, including the WB's CEO, Kevin Sujihara, fielding questions questions. questions from both Masters and McClintock. If I have time, I'll put some excerpts at the end of this podcast which go directly to questions that are still being asked today, and you can definitely see the birth of the narrative that Masters wanted to tell eight months ago, despite those questions being asked and answered. She wanted to clone Feige even back then. But before we dive into the interview, a little background on the current structure of Warner Brothers and Greg Silverman's place in it might help you understand who he is and how the WB works. So, prior to Sujahara's July 2013 Ascension to CEO the WB looked like a pyramid with CEO Barry Meyer at the top overseeing three divisions divided by media type movies TV and home entertainment Jeff Robinov was the president of Warner Brothers Picture Group the movies and he presided over the Dark Knight trilogy Inception Argo gravity and so on Bruce Rosenblum was president of TV and Kevin Sujihara, who had been with the company since Since 1994, was president of home entertainment, which means video, digital games, cross-platform, multimedia, etc. In a bit of a Game of Thrones and corporate restructuring, Meyer announced Sujihara as replacing himself as CEO, and so there was a new pyramid topped by Sujihara arose, and it was no longer divided by media type, but by function and goals: one, marketing and distribution; two, creative development and production; and three, New Line Cinema. Sue Kroll was the President of Marketing and Distribution, Greg Silverman as President of Creative Development and Production, and Toby Emmerich maintaining his position as COO of New Line, while also overseeing the WB's theater division. The decisions that DCCU fans care about generally get made by a three-person committee of Sujahara, Kroll, and Silverman. And with Shazam under New Line, Emmerich would be in on those meetings. Whereas Robinov ran everything, today it's Silverman. Silverman with an eye for the creative, Kroll with an eye for business, and Sujahara overseeing it all from the top, putting his cross-platform multimedia experience to use. While the emphasis is on film, note that this panel isn't divided by or for media anymore. So they all have ideas on how things will work across media platforms, and how a property translates from film to TV to games to toys and beyond. This isn't a feudal system with fiefdoms, where the movies look after movies and push TV around, this is a panel system, which has its hands in all pies, marketing, creative, and corporate, all working together on any one project rather than fighting it out. And what's a little hilarious is how unaccustomed Hollywood is to this kind of idea, despite it being the way that many successful things are run. Not by a singular dictator, who beheads would-be usurpers, but by a cabinet of experts. It's like no one will take the WB at their word that they're not engaged in an executive bake-off, a death sport intended to pit a ex- executives against one another until only one remains. Well, it's been a year later and the council is still hard at work, so no fight to the death, for now. Okay, so hopefully you get the idea now. Greg is the one overseeing the DCCU tent poles. He's also overseeing the Harry Potter spin offs and the WB's attempt at original franchises. Kevin works with him to make sure that everything makes corporate sense, and Sue makes sure that everything makes business sense. This is broadly speaking and for illustration purposes. Obviously, it's much more nuanced, and all three are competent for much more and responsible for much more, but that should give you the idea for now. This is the guy sitting down with THR to address the questions raised by the April THR article. So let's get into it. Okay, so the first few answers address the structure and the responsibilities which we've already discussed. He mentions how the new franchises like Lego Movie are a big part of their overall structure. But the first pointed question is how DC is different from Marvel. And Greg answers that their strategy is to quote, take these beloved characters and put them in the hands of master filmmakers and to make sure that they all coordinate with each other. End quote. In other words the studio isn't dictating how the films link up at this time. The filmmakers are, and they're doing it with the studio's help. If you're a longtime comic book fan, you probably know that that's how most comics are made. It's up to the writer to fit their story into the world, and the editor just gives guidance on how it might fit better, or the publisher sets up opportunities for the writers to get together and have a creative summit on the direction that they want to go in. Yes, Sometimes editorial dictates a story and a direction from on high, especially with events, but generally, the talent is left to their own devices. Neither approach is right or wrong. They can both work, and I'd rather have Snyder, Ayer, Jenkins, and Juan excitedly and organically bouncing ideas off one another than have Snyder play Feige and tell these other filmmakers what their films were going to be. Now, that does suggest that the DCCU isn't going anywhere in particular, but at a certain point, we have to ask ourselves, Does that matter if each film is, in and of itself, an event? I'm not watching Wonder Woman because it's a waypoint to the Justice League, but because I've waited my entire life to see her come to life with a big budget on the silver screen. Whatever connective tissue we get to the DCCU is just icing on the cake, and it's not why I'm watching the movie. And I think that's typically how it is for most comics you read. It's on your pull list because you want what that character or that creative team offers, not necessarily some fractional piece of a larger story elsewhere. Maybe. Again, there's no explicit right or wrong. It's a spectrum of execution, and putting passionate filmmakers in charge of their own vision seems like a step in the right direction to get films with something to say, films with style and distinction, yet which can still connect and give you that payoff of a shared universe. Now the next question, Greg takes on the allegations that Batman v Superman seems too dark. His answer lit up the internet, but I don't think it's nearly as controversial as all that and fits exactly what we've discussed. Silverman says that they're quote, making great movies about superheroes. They aren't making superhero movies, unquote. And all that means is they don't plan to follow a cookie-cutter, four-quadrant, formula, or house style, but they're going to let the filmmaking come first. Greg also says that humor is an important part, which seems like a rebuttal that the WB ever had a no-jokes policy. Consistent with that, it means that the tones of the films will not be dictated by a house style. he says, the intensity and the seriousness of purpose comes from the characters and from the filmmakers, not the studio. None of this is a promise that the films will be good, but these are principles that I admire and I'm excited about. From Batman v Superman to Wonder Woman, Greg answers that Patty Jenkins was their next choice and not simply a token female director. He commends her for her character work, such as in Monster. Now here I think he's being a little political, but not disingenuous or dishonest. The way that the question was posed and the way that the internet is, he'd be hard pressed to say Jenkins being a woman was a factor without such response being taken out of context and robbed of nuance. However, I see no reason not to give him the benefit of the doubt, as both McLaren and Jenkins are phenomenal candidates. Marvel obviously picked Patty Jenkins for Thor 2, without any gendered agenda that we're aware of. So why couldn't the WB have hired her for the same merits and talents? Greg then addresses the parallel development with multiple writers. He acknowledges that every project is different, so what they're doing here isn't what's happening in every case. And we know that for a fact, because the writing team for Man of Steel was very very tightly knit and probably could have used a little outside input. We also know that Suicide Squad is also being run by Ayer's script. However here, with Wonder Woman, the studio provided a framework, meaning that there is a plan, and the writers were pitching on their takes on scenes within that framework. Now how much or how little the writers elected to collaborate was wasn't up to the studio, which Greg says treats its writers with quote-unquote respect and grace. Obviously THR's alleged sources might disagree, but the issue doesn't seem to be the competition, but that the writers didn't know that they were competing. And now that the cat's out of the bag, the writers can go in with their eyes open. They can decline the job if they don't like it, or they can embrace the challenge of trying to pitch the most enticing idea. Basically, the optional collaboration is occurring up front, rather than being a man mandatory quote-unquote collaboration, while the film is in production and the writers have already become precious about their script. There's much, much more to that interview, but you can check that out on your own. Let's briefly talk about Patty Jenkins. Jeff Johns recently tweeted that he loved talking Diana with our amazing Wonder Woman director. Inspiring. And Patty replied, Lucky to have the best of the best. Jeff Johns on my team. Very excited about this film that we're making. Well, besides her insights into character-driven filmmaking, and really getting into the psychology of a character, and getting that performance out of her actors, a neat bit of trivia that you might not be aware of is that Jenkins is married to writer Sam Sheridan, who has led an adventurous, and perhaps relevant, life. He graduated from Harvard, he served in the Merchant Marines at Norfolk, He was a firefighter in New Mexico, and then he became a professional Muay Thai fighter in Bangkok. Sheridan wrote A Fighter's Heart, and then the follow-up A Fighter's Mind, giving insight first into his journey, and then into the minds of those in the combative arts and sports. Could Jenkins possibly have a better partner from which to draw worldly adventures and a warrior's character from? I want to say yes, but some spouses don't work together like that, (laughs) so who knows? But I thought it was interesting. Wonder Woman has become such a bundle of compelling paradoxes, but based on Monster, I believe Jenkins can find the threads to lead the audience through that maze. Well, time for James Wan. James Wan is definitely a hot director right now, coming off the incredible success of Furious 7. With things so far off and Sony's Robotech in the mix, I'm only going to comment a little. I know that there's a press release, so my rule is that I can talk about it, not that I have to talk about it. <laughs> Yeah. <sighs> I think on paper, he's a good fit. Furious 7 proves that Juan can work within an existing world, and that he can work with big budgets, visual effects, and movie stars. But more than anything else, Furious 7 proves that Juan can roll with the punches, given how the devastating loss of Paul Walker might have brought other films to its knees. Juan was able to rally his cast and crew and produce a film that grossed over $1.5 billion worldwide. Also from a paper perspective, he's an Asian director working with a Polynesian lead after coming off a massive success that many attributed to the film's diversity. That's another encouraging plus for the film, especially as foreign markets outpace domestic on these tent poles. Announcing him this early suggests that he'll be in on the ground floor for the pre-production, the world-building, and relatively early in on the script process, which we know that Warner Bros. has been tinkering with for some time, but is now being overseen by Kurt Johnstadt, whom I don't know enough about in order to comment." But it means that he's going to be available for input with respect to Justice League and to provide better cohesion for the DCCU as a whole. He recently tweeted out an HP Lovecraft quote with the hashtag world creation. For ocean is more ancient than the mountains, and weighted with the memories and the dreams of time. That quote sends chills up my spine, and it suggests that Juan feels genuinely inspired. Aquaman releases three years from now, and he's already building worlds and visiting aquariums. There's a great piece at Vulture about his process. I'll put a link in the show notes. One last note about Aquaman. Silverman said that they intend for it to be a major tentpole, and that's consistent with the view that each of these films are meant to be an event unto itself, not something just to hold you over until the next Justice League team up. On to David Ayer. Just a quick bit of trivia. He served two years in the Navy as a submariner. I enjoy the sensibility of his films and his writing. I've seen several of his films, but I still just can't pin down what Suicide Squad is going to be, and frankly, I love that. I love that the DCCU feels like it can still be a complete surprise to me, and that's in no small part due to what we've seen from Suicide Squad. I may love it, I may not like it, but I get that sense of adventure when I pull a random indie comic off the shelf of my local comic book store to give it a shot, and that sense of open expectations to me is part of why films like Guardians of the Galaxy or Fury Road just floored the audience. If we just take a second to look at the spectrum of directorial talent and styles, in the next three years, we are getting Snyder, Ayer, Jenkins, Snyder, maybe Lord & Miller, and then Juan. At that point, you can hardly accuse the WB of typecasting its directors, and you would reasonably expect different styles and flavors from each of these directors. And again, that's just like the comic books. Even if it's all the same universe, I expect, and I am delighted by, the differences between Morrison, Moore, and Miller, Bendis, Gaiman, Vaughn, Wade, and Ellis. Even if my preference is one of those authors or that style, I still want those other takes and voices and variations and varieties variety. Not differences or change for its own sake, but for diversity and artistry. An adventurous palette doesn't mean that you lack taste, it gives you greater appreciation for your preferences. And I suspect that I'm going to enjoy the DCCU's slate, but it's also going to give me greater appreciation for how carefully they constructed Man of Steel in a world without weird around every corner. I think we're running a little long, so I'm going to skip casting and actors and get on to our last big section on business and licensing. So it's it's really easy for fans to get wrapped up in the world of film, whether it's in terms of speculation or story, without realizing how much of the content is driven by business and law, rather than just purely creative reasons. And for a lot of new and younger fans, those kinds of realizations come early when they understand that Marvel and DC are different companies, or perhaps today, Microsoft and Sony as different platforms and corporations. It sort of dawns on them that Batman, ordinarily, is not going to hang out with the the X-Men. And it's not because the audience doesn't want to see that or that the creators don't want to make it, it's because business doesn't make it easy to allow that. And as you get a little older or more sophisticated, you might get a better grasp of where those boundaries lie and what's going on behind the scenes in terms of rights management. I imagine most filmgoers never gave it a second thought about the distinction between the rights holder, a licensee, the production company, and the distributing studio, and so on. However, this new era of superhero films has really Started to bring those kinds of distinctions to the forefront for even the casual moviegoer. Audience sophistication in this area has increased enough that they generally recognize the distinction between a Marvel movie by Marvel Studios and a Marvel property movie licensed to either Sony or Fox. Licensing is the secret behind George Lucas's success with Star Wars. Licensing is why Disney bought Marvel and Star Wars. But what is licensing? Well, let's start with intellectual property. Intellectual property, very broadly speaking, is the legal right to exclude others from exploiting some intangible property interest, like using your characters, marketing it with a brand name, and so on. Well, certain companies hold a bundle of intellectual property rights, copyright, trademarks, trade dress, etc. And licensing permits others to economically exploit those intellectual property rights for a fee. Here's a brief clip from the licensing expo, hopefully explaining it a little bit.
3: But in a world with millions of products, how can anyone hold to make their products stand out. So how can retailers and manufacturers cause their products to connect with today's disenchanted public? Well, it starts by realizing that there are brands consumers do trust through years of great experiences. And it's possible for retailers and manufacturers to simply borrow that trust by labeling their products with the marks of these trusted brands. This growing form of marketing is called licensing, and it's today's most effective innovation for quickly and effectively communicating the value of your products to your customers. Here's why it works. Brand owners have earned the trust and loyalty of millions of consumers all over the world. And those consumers associate their favorite brands with specific and important values. But these values extend into product categories far beyond the ones currently produced by the brand owners. This leftover value is called untapped brand equity and it's often simply waiting for a retailer or manufacturer to put it to good use. Licensing this valuable brand equity will label their products in a way that deeply connects with the consumers and can often give an exclusive advantage to the licensee or retailer, putting them miles ahead of their competitors. Today, brand owners are only getting a return on a fraction of the value they work so hard to create. But through licensing, brand owners can allow retailers and manufacturers to extend their brands at no cost to the brand, creating multiple streams of new revenue simply by discovering the right connections. Licensing can repeatedly create a win for the retailer, a win for the brand owner, and a win for the consumer. Brands are the best friends of product marketers. And in the same way, retailers and manufacturers can help brand owners discover the full value of their brand's equity. Brand owners can get a larger return on the real value of their brand. And retailers and manufacturers can begin to
0: employ the benefits
3: of licensing to cause their products to start flying off
0: the shelf. If you didn't get all that, here's the gist. Imagine a toy maker that can make their own designs. However, consumers associate positive experiences with Warner Brothers intellectual property, like Superman. If a consumer has a choice between buying an unfamiliar character by Toymaker or a Superman toy, they'll gladly buy the Superman toy. But Toymaker isn't allowed to make a Superman toy without permission from the the WB. Superman is their IP, their intellectual property, and the WB has the right to make and sell as many Superman toys as it wants. However, the WB doesn't make toys, and so without licensing, everyone is losing. The consumer doesn't get to buy a Superman toy, toy maker can't make a Superman toy, and the WB doesn't make Superman toys. Licensing is limited permission to enjoy another's rights. Although the WB has the right to make toys, because it doesn't make toys, it might as well license the rights to Toymaker. So now they have permission to make Superman toys. And if Toymaker pays the WB for the license, it tends to be a win all around. The consumer now can get a Superman toy. Toymaker can sell a product that the consumer wants, and the WB gets money for the value of Superman applied to toys. Now, I think most people get these basics, but perhaps they overlook a few nuances that leave them confused with things like Marvel or character embargoes. So we get that the license here, Toymaker, is paying for the privilege to produce Superman toys. But what else are you getting for your fee? Paying for the privilege is another way of saying that you're paying not to be sued right? In other words, if Toymaker doesn't secure a license and then starts making and selling Superman toys, who's going to stop them and what is the penalty or punishment? Well, the punishment is that the WB, the rights holder, will sue Toymaker for violating their IP rights. So by securing a license, that's an agreement not to be sued by the WB for exercising agreed upon rights. You're also paying for exclusivity to some degree. Why would Toymaker go through the effort of negotiating, paying for, securing a license if Toymaker's competitor, say Dollmaker, makes Superman toys without paying for a license, and the WB doesn't sue them, right? In other words, by paying for a license, toy maker expects the WB to go after competitors infringing on Toymaker's license, to justify that license. And this explains why you sometimes see companies going after infringers who seem otherwise irrelevant or harmless. It's not necessarily that the rights holder really cares about the infringing activity. It's more like an obligation to a licensee to preserve the terms and the value of that license. A lot of these burdens can shift and change with negotiations and skillful drafting, but we're just covering the basics. So the license is paying for the privilege and they're paying not to be sued and they're paying for protection and exclusivity. What else are they paying for? Part of what they're paying for is duration and certainty. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you paid for a license and you never had to give it back and there were absolutely no conditions on it, then that really isn't a license. Haven't you just bought the actual thing at that point? In other words, the rights holder always has to hold something back. If they didn't, it's a permanent sale of the rights. They have to act like a landlord, with a lease agreement, and who keeps a spare set of keys. They can't act like somebody who hands you the deed, the only keys to the house, and then disappears forever. So there are always rules and conditions for the rights and the license to go back to the original owner. And these are decided by contract, and they can be anything from a duration to a money amount to a lapse in the exploitation, in other words leaving the license inactive for too long, or some morality clauses which cause the rights to revert back to the original owner. However, these clauses need to be fair and reasonable in duration. Nobody's going to pay for a license that reverts back at will and without explanation, right? So hopefully this helps you understand why Marvel's license persists with Sony and Fox. Sony and Fox never would have bought licenses if they could not control the expiration. However, Marvel wouldn't sell a license that permanently gives up the rights. Instead, the license requires that Sony and Fox exploit, that is, use, the license every so often to justify the continual license. If they can't or they don't, the license reverts back to Marvel so that they can exploit the rights themselves, or they can license them out to somebody who will use them, which is the most efficient use of the rights for the consumer and the rights holder, rather than to have them sitting unused, unexploited, with a licensee who isn't doing any thing Okay, this is going on longer than I expected. I had a section on derivative works and how this all comes together to explain embargoes, but that's another 30-minute lecture, and you didn't sign up for that, so let's cap licensing here, and let's say that embargoes are another episode. Uh, Because we're going long, I'm going to skip the Man of Steel business analysis. I'm sorry, but considering how long it just took to explain the broad cursory basics of licensing, it's going to take way too long to explain Hollywood accounting and how Man of Steel is a success on many fronts from its massive amount of marketing partners to the amortized costs and the appeal of enduring product placement and more. If I ever have the time or the inclination, I might do a blog post, but if you want a nice introduction to Hollywood accounting, I recommend a great video by Film IQ. I'll put a link in the show notes and that will give you a little insight into why Man of Steel was a success. The quickest and the surest retort to any claims that Man of Steel was a financial failure is the existence of not one, not two, not three, but an entire Entire slate of films undergoing active production based on the bedrock of Man of Steel. It doesn't matter how badly Warner Brothers wanted comic book movies to be a thing, if Man of Steel was a failure, they wouldn't build on it. And I would defy the person to point out any other time multiple films were produced based on a failed film. Uh, looking at my notes, I've got to skip the licensing expo too, which is perhaps just as well. I've had my fill of that through work. I do love that Wonder Woman is going to be pushed just as a aggressively, from a licensing perspective, as Batman and Superman, which should reinvigorate her icon and bring her back into our collective consciousness. I anticipate some blowback from those who expect or imagine Linda Carter as the one and only Wonder Woman, but I think there's been enough time, and the show wasn't quite as big as Donner Superman, that it won't be as bad. Especially since Wonder Woman isn't headlining Batman v Superman, so I expect her to be a welcome surprise who steals the show. But in another way, if you watch a movie laden with expectation, that's a lot for the film to overcome. But if Wonder Woman blindsides the casual audience not expecting her, she can make a great first impression, leaving the public clamoring for more. There were so many new details picked up by seeing her costume close up and in insanely high resolution, which I could wax on for hours, but we gotta wrap this up. Let me just sum it up like this. If you look at the fine detail work on the Trinity's costumes, it is so rich in world-building, storytelling, and reality. I genuinely get moved at how much work went into them to make them emblematic of tradition, but also reside within the reality of their world. Superman's Kryptonian heritage is laced throughout his science fiction form, Batman looks like he stepped out of our collective comic book consciousness, and Wonder Woman is approached so carefully that they took on the challenge of a completely confronting costume but made it cultural. I could feel the history of the civilization it's from and the magic, real or imagined, meant to imbue her arms and armor. It really does make the Trinity out to be royalty and it gets me excited to see how much they're putting into this world that they're building. Alright, a quick two-minute tangent since I don't know when I'd ever bring this up again except in a business segment, but consider this a short Warner Brothers pep talk about their history of overwhelming success. Now, according to Box Office Mojo, in terms of domestic marketing, market Market share over the past 15 years, Warner Brothers has been the number one studio seven of those years. Think about that level of consistency for a second. That means of the dozen or so major studios for the past decade and a half, Warner Brothers has come in above all other studios in market share as number one, the best of the best every other year. Imagine if a sports team won seven championships out of the last 15 years, and then what about the years where Warner Brothers wasn't number one? Well, in the past 15 years if the WB wasn't in first place. It was second or third every year, except 2006 when Superman Returns came out. But even then, the WB placed a respectable fourth that year. Now consider the top 600 worldwide grossing films of all time. Warner Brothers accounts for 100 of those films. That is a single studio accounting for one sixth of the greatest grossing films of all time. So to wrap it up, this is a studio with a sterling record for making money in the modern era, where films are competing with online entertainment, video games, television streaming on demand, and who has positioned themselves with a CEO who understands that. Basically, when people predict that the sky is falling and that the the WB doesn't know what it's doing, ask them, what's the last seriously competitive sports team with the consistency to win the championship seven times out of the last 15 years? And then remind them that that's the kind of track record that the WB is working with. We're at the end here. I'm going to skip San Diego Comic-Con speculation and just going to enjoy this calm before the storm. Because if we get a torrent or deluge of information or imagery for me to comment on and break down, I don't think I'm going to be able to contain myself. And you might just get nightly fevered ramblings about the sort of deliberate analysis and contemplation that I try to exercise before gushing. I'm trying to keep my expectations in check. Hopefully, come July 9th, I'll be able to say my body is ready. <laughs> Yikes, that's a meme that dates back to E3 of 2007. Speaking of E3, y- y- no, actually, no, never mind. I'll save that one for my students. Um, You know what? Let's just call it. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. Here are some shows I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos.
4: Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet, our assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero,
2: Superman. Superman.
4: Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring
5: Superman and Batman,
0: Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast,
2: the
3: DC Comics Presents Show,
0: from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, it's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, the Carousel Podcast, Superman Forever
3: Radio, Superman Lives,
2: Up Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. The Amateur Steel A John Henry Rollins podcast
0: The
1: world's best podcast And
0: Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com
2: Join hosts Michael Bradley John Wilson Billy Hogan Charlie Niemeyer
0: Russell
3: Brad Jeffrey Taylor Michael Bailey Scott Gardner
2: Sam Rizzo Danny Sapp Bob Fisher
3: Chris Moe Mario Benesi, Drew Wintermeyer David Byer Matthew Epps I'm Isaac
4: I'm Adam Dave Eunice and co-host Scotty V At supermanpodcastnetwork.com
0: Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener and hope you'll join us at manasteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got a question that you want answered or an insight you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing up. See you next time.
1: You're the answer, son.
0: So if you've stuck around after the sign-off, the following excerpts come from a November 2014 THR Roundtable interview with top studio executives, and I definitely recommend checking out the full thing, but I've selected a few excerpts where Warner Brothers CEO Kevin Sujahara tackles some really salient questions. Honestly, I could do a whole podcast just on this, and while I'd love to do the commentary, I'll just leave it to you to interpret for yourself, because I've got Father's Day duties to attend to. If you have any questions, or comments or insights, be sure to send them in. But for now, please enjoy these excerpts.
6: The directors and stars may get all the glory, but it's the studio moguls and the independent film distributors who really control the power. Join us as we sit down with some of the industry's top executives to discuss their quest for success at the box office in a rapidly changing business. On this episode, we have Jim Gianopoulos, Chairman and CEO, 20th Century Fox. Alan Horn, Chairman, Walt Disney Studios. Brad Gray, Chairman and CEO, Paramount Pictures. Kevin Tsujihara, Chairman and CEO, Warner Brothers Entertainment. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter Roundtable's The Executives. <laughs> Welcome to the Hollywood Reporter Executive Roundtable. I'm Kim Masters. I'm Pamela McClintock. I want to welcome Alan Horn of Disney, Kevin Suchihara of Warner Brothers. Welcome to all of you. Thank Thank you. you.
7: I'll be asking the first question, which is, what is your biggest concern going forward for each of your respective
4: companies? I think for us, it's maintaining our creative excellence. I mean, I think that it takes care of itself if you make great movies, and We are focused on having a very large, broad, diverse slate, and it's challenging. It's challenging to find that much material. For all of us, um, we're in competition for the material, and as as you said, there's incredible competition with the quality of television programming getting as strong as it is, with video games, and you look at the the ads for some of these video games, and the quality is absolutely amazing, and that's not even considering the internet content that you're now seeing out there. So there's competition across a broad level of, of spectrums but you also have to figure out how you can
8: maintain your creative excellence in all that in amidst
4: all that competition right Right. Um, uh,
8: i think uh, there's an elusive balance among all the different media available to the prospective audience the windowing issue is very challenging for us finding the balance between domestic and international box office return what kind of movies to make Scheduling movies in an increasingly complicated marketplace. And then also, the choices available to consumers out there have just expanded, and there's some great television being produced, really great television. And there is a finite amount of leisure time. So how do we get them to go out and leave the house, go to the theater, watch a film in the theater so we can at least start, especially as the cost of movies has increased?
6: Alan, you mentioned television, and you you have probably the biggest franchise factory of... Sorry, guys, but he, he does seem to have a franchise factory. Pixar, Lucasfilm, Marvel, of course, Disney animation. So you have a lot of personality to manage. At this, and I'm not quite sure how you manage all of those competing films that want dates. But I also wonder, when you talk about television, what people are flocking to on television is exactly what you guys are not doing. You know, you're going to that big play. Is that just the way it is now for the film business?
8: Well, I think there's a, I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't presume to speak for the film business, but for us, we have um, a brand that we think resonates out there in the, the community of audiences, and we sort of stick to our knitting. We say, okay, what we're gonna do is we do what we do, across the brands that you mentioned. Uh, there, that means there are lots of films that we cannot and will not do, but when we're in our wheelhouse, that seems to work with us. A lot of the television programming that is uh, doing so well out there, Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones and uh, House of Cards, all these shows, are shows that uh, speak to a different audience segment than our product does. So we've decided we're just going to try to do what we do as well as we can and hope that it continues to work out there.
6: And do any of the rest of you guys think, you know, Breaking Bad, that kind of works, that works on TV, but never, you know, we're happy leaving that to TV, that kind of adult, really offbeat thing, which seems to be you aren't doing as much of, for sure.
4: I think you could make things work in both platforms. If you look at what we're doing with Gotham, how different that universe is to Flash and how that different universe is to Arrow on television versus what we're doing on the movie side, they all feel very different. And I think you could make the world work as long as you think through the implications of it. And I think we're all, all of our, our companies are making very are making great television programming as well as movies.
6: Kevin, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, the Marvel presentation. You guys presented DC Comics at an investor day. Mm-hmm. These guys, <laughs> Uh, presented to a room full, a theater full of screaming fans. It, does that speak to Warner Brothers and Time Warner's agenda? Is that the investor day versus going to the fans? What does that tell no, us?
4: No, I, I think it was just about an opportunity to use that platform to kind of lay out our plan for DC movies. I think, first and foremost, I would, if I was wearing a hat, I'd take my hat off to Allen and Disney. They've done an amazing job on the movie side with Marvel, and I think it's nothing short of incredible. If you look at Guardians, I mean, I, I called you after that. It was amazing um and the biggest movie of the summer but i don't think that the venue that we chose to kind of lay that out versus what you did at the Al capitan is anything about the quality or the types of movies or what we're looking to achieve on the movie side than what alan's trying to do on the movie side we're just trying to make great movies
8: i would return the comment and say that the dc library is filled with fabulous characters and it's no surprise that we would all look to the resources available to us to try to make films that, that work out there and that the audience seems to really enjoy. So I don't think the venue is particularly uh, important to the, the story, and the story is that we're all going to our resources to make the best films we can.
7: Well, speaking of that, I mean, first, though, were you trying to one-up Warner Brothers?
8: No, there's, there's no one-upping of anything. We don't, we're in competition with every studio that does all kinds of movies, including right. the other colleagues here at this table. We're all in competition, right. but we all, it, it's not about, it's, there's nothing personal, there's nothing anything about it. What we're trying to do is put together a program. I will say that it's become increasingly the practice to designate relief states further in advance ahead. than, is than a ever scary, before. Isn't it? I <clears throat> mean, well, Geist I think is that as, the thing, as these large tentpole movies proliferate as the so-called event movies increase in number and there are a limited number of weeks in a year, mm-hmm. there are months when January for example when it doesn't seem like it's most ideal to release a large movie because you want a large audience available to see it. And these are ten-pole movies. They have uh, big budgets. They require big returns. They uh, demand international acceptance, or they're hard to do. So we're all, we all jockey around in this space trying to find the dates.
7: I mean, speaking of that, this is a question for, you know, several of you, aren't you worried about superhero overload with, you know, how many movies in the next, you know, through 2020?
4: I think we started out the conversation about great movies and whether the genres comedies, dramas, romantic comedies. And if you use the example of animation, there used to be one or two animated films a year. And now there's 10 or 12, yeah. but it's all about great movies. We don't call it a great animated movie. We call it a great movie. And I I think that what you have to do is make great movies. And if you do that, and you saw this summer when you had, what, four superhero movies? Your movie at the end of the summer, which was the fourth in line, which you would have thought if there was going to ever be fatigue, it would have been there. August. Was the biggest movie of the summer. So I really do think that it's about having the best best great movies. Also,
8: the term superhero has become sort of all-inclusive, but in fact, I think there's delineation that might be appropriate. I mean, Captain America is a spy movie to us in, in many right. respects. Uh, Thor is a Shakespearean drama in some respects. I know that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <Whoa>. uh, <laughs> okay, literature. Yes,
7: <laughs> I'm going right
5: to go. Marvel <laughs> literature. And what is, what is Iron Man?
8: <laughs> Iron or Man's or a superhero movie. <laughs> the original. But we—it's all about, as Kevin says, they're all about just making good movies, and all of us at the table. Are in that business? We all do them.
6: Uh, Jim um, Marvel, your friend Alan's friends at Marvel pulled the Fantastic Four comic for now. They did. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did. <laughs> so, does it? Do you get the feeling that Alan's Marvel is trying to strangle your Marvel no, in the cradle? So.
5: <laughs> uh, I don't know how that decision came about. The the uh, the comic either. was not a huge <laughs> seller. Fantastic Four is a very established, you know group of characters, and, and the film is awesome. So yeah, you know, I think, um, I don't know how that played into their decision, but it wasn't, it wasn't in the book, wasn't selling as well as others, so.
8: so it doesn't matter from your standpoint? Uh, not from point. our perspective, no. a Completely independent decision, but I didn't even know about it. I mean, honestly, we don't, it's not even. Mm-hmm. That's the game
1: we're in, so we'll continue to do that, and we'll do it to the point where we're, we're making uh, four or five of those franchises. A year. Four or five is a lot. Yeah, yeah. You but guys that's... cloning
6: Kevin Feige? Is there some kind of a <laughs> scientific experiment? So no, I don't. I,
1: I actually, I am. I have such great regard for for Kevin and for everything that that uh, all the success Marvel's had. Um, but but we're all Paramount. Speaking of Paramount, is. 102 years old show business by definition is always cyclical it's always cyclical you know and so i believe these movies will exist for a very very long time will they be predominant will they be the pictures that we all look at every year in terms of box office years and years to come i don't know i don't know but i do know that we'll all try to entertain and we will be around where our studios will be around for a very long time to come with that strategy so th- that's how we're dealing with it we're trying to tell stories we think are going to entertain people
7: and kevin is is there another executive bake-off going on for you guys at your studio?
6: No. That's certainly a perception. <laughs> it's not. I mean, we're sitting here right now. <laughs> I want to, a, a year from now, we'll have the same structure, you think? I think that
4: what's working with the structure, and I think that it shows in the quality and what we're doing and the performance of our movies is, and it started, it existed when we all worked for Alan. And it's about collaboration, it's about teamwork, and it's working. I mean, I just want
6: to clarify for a moment in case people don't know what we're alluding to. You have sort of a committee structure You have Greg Silverman, you have uh, Sue Kroll, you have Toby Emmerich and others that run your film studio. And it's, it's unconventional to have a committee running a studio.
4: I think you have to find the structure that works for your company. And whether it's unique to your company or it models after another company, I think you have to find what works. And it's working. And I think the the performance of our movies and, and our slate are reflective of the teamwork that those executives and many others. I mean, you just You're mentioned three. You're coming off
6: a very difficult
4: summer, so I'm not I, sure the performance. I don't was. think that it was, you know, we all had a, the summer wasn't what I think any of us around this table mm-hmm. expected it to be. I
6: don't be. know, I think Alan's pretty happy, are well, you? Alan's always happy, but that's Jim. different. That's a different happy. Issue. Everybody's I don't day Brad's comes, comes and, up, and, you know. <laughs> it's,
4: yeah. as, as Brad said, it was a cyclical, it's a cyclical business. And, it was and a, volatile, it, it's a very volatile it was, Challenging summer, but I think that if we were to go back, let's talk about the fall, let's talk about the beginning of the year when we had Lego in February, we had Annabelle. And that movie's going to do over $250 million worldwide.
6: On a very small budget.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. on a very small budget. I mean, so, you know. Those, you have to look at a slate of movies. I mean, I, and I think you have to look at a body of work. And I think when you look at that, we're gonna end up, look at the year and what we're gonna finish the year up with. I mean, with The Hobbit, Horrible Bosses 2, Interstellar with Brad, Inherent Vice with with Paul Thomas Anderson. I and mean, we have a very, very strong slate of movies coming up. Right. And, and not to mention the final movie of the year that will be a limited release, but we're very proud of American Sniper as
6: well. And I just wanted to circle back on the sale question. Do you, you're laying people off off. I mean, even at HBO, which is reaping in money, uh, layoffs. It looks like a gussying up for a sale.
4: No, we're, we're absolutely not gussying up for a sale. I, that's a nice word. Um, I gussy up for other things, but not for a sale. Certainly <laughs> for today. Uh, for this uh, morning. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. This morning was fun to gussy up. Um, I, we are absolutely not. I mean, and, and and we've all gone through these types of layoffs before. Uh, everybody around this table, and they're very, very difficult. Because we are leaning into film and television, the production and creative parts of our business were not impacted, because we're actually increasing our investment there. But it had nothing to do with the fact that we're looking to do anything other than to grow our business, and we think that we needed to do certain things that will allow us to position ourselves for growth going forward. And, you know, I think that there was a lot of focus around the franchises that we talked about with Lego and um, Fantastic Beasts and the DC movies, but we, we really are focused on creating a really broad, diverse slate of movies.
6: Well, you certainly and have we, material to work with yeah. in terms of franchise, yeah. and you also have exactly. different movies we're that other on studios top of that. aren't making. Yeah,
4: and, and I think that that's very important. I think we're going to continue to do that.
6: Can we talk for like a minute about China? Uh, we just had the visit of Jack Ma. Some of you met with him. Some of you not didn't. I, I, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of suspense about is China going to come in? Or are they going to buy one of... There's companies, and they, they could seem to be able to do that with the change in the sofa cushions yeah. <laughs> at this point. Uh, but what about this question of Alibaba? The, the reason they ostensibly were here was streaming material yeah. in part. There's no
4: opportunity like China out in the really? world. I mean, you look at the size of what that business is going to be in 2018. I think the number is like six and a half, seven billion dollars 7000000000 billion a box office. There's just nothing like it growing. And is a great company. As Jim said, there's other great companies as well. And I think that all of us are going to look at every opportunity that we have, try and build, as Jim said, ancillary businesses. We're involved with Tencent on a venture, on a streaming venture, for a Netflix-type service there that's quite successful. And I think that we need to build more successful businesses because the appetite for our films and local films is massive. And so we have to do what we do, make great movies and great content.
8: The story in China, even in the last decade, has has, is is a is a stunning transformation. They have really, really grown as a market. They have twenty thousand screens in China. We have over forty four thousand in the domestic marketplace. They have four times as many people as we do. They're building eighteen screens a day. They got like like four of them up already. <laughs> they're really they're really changing the face of the international marketplace. So anyone would ignore China at his or her peril. It's, it's really a big story.
7: Final question, you know, this summer we did see, I mean, with some exceptions, especially in the U.S., a lot of tent poles sort of flattened out around 250, which was a first. You know, there's been many years where stuff has gone over 300, 400. You know, and as younger people, as we've all talked about here, go to other technologies, did this summer
6: alarm you guys in the U.S.? I know that internationally it was just as strong. And I sort of wonder if catering to the international audience winds up costing you some domestic, you know.
4: No, I think that there was a lot of factors that played into this summer and I think one of the things that we probably underestimated a little bit was the World Cup. Yeah. The World Cup and those ratings that you saw but here and, you're, yeah, you're the talking US, about in the US, the, US. The, the, the US ratings yeah. for the World Cup mm-hmm. mm-hmm. were the highest ever. ever. And yeah. if my household is the, is any kind of barometer my kids who've played soccer all the way through loved it and watched it religiously and so you look at at that it, i think it definitely had an impact this summer i think product had had somewhat of an impact and and always the content and other kind of forms of competition also play a content. But I don't think it was one single factor, and I don't think you could look at that because you look at the fall. We've already picked up this yeah. fall.
7: Right, but we haven't like like seen, I mean, to, but to be honest, we haven't seen a temple still, well, Guardians, I guess, is it 300? Yeah, three, so, three
8: you know, 20, 30. Five, but the the, the We increasingly look at a global return. It really has, for these large movies that you are referring to, we are focused on what they derive in a global marketplace because um, it's the only way to look at them. They're expensive and uh, it's not uncommon for these pictures to do twice the business internationally that they do domestically, and they end up being very, very successful for us
1: as Alan said, I mean, we we did a billion two on
8: Transformers.
1: Okay, we live in a world where the facts are. We do over 70% of our business now around the world. It's probably going to increase with China. What I would say in terms of Transformers was that all of the choices, as Kevin alluded to, that everybody had over the summer um, probably Took a toll on transformers, um, and the length took a toll on transformers. But uh, if Michael Bay is going to drive a billion two for us, we're very, very happy. You people. Probably sign yeah. up for that again. Yes. <laughs> as we
6: have. Into <laughs> that have. Chris Nolan time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're very smart at looking
7: at the marketplace, and what were your thoughts as to what happened in the I, U.S.? I think
5: I think Kevin's point about the World Cup is one of it, and I think look, there was there were a lot of choices, and people move on to the next weekend and they enjoy a great movie. But I think when you're up there in the 200 and 250 range, that's a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I think it, it reflects the fact that there are a diversity of choices. But overall, I mean, you know, it was a great summer. At least for us, it was a great summer, and in many respects for everyone, it was a great summer.
6: Donna Langley, Alan Horn, Jim Gianopoulos, Brad Gray, Kevin Suchihara, Jonathan Searing, thank you very much for joining Pamela McClintock and me, Kim Masters. We appreciate your candor.
8: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank, you. you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. You're the answer son.